What a blessing to be able to come together and to study the Word of God. And I'll encourage you to get your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll spend most of our time this morning in Hebrews chapter 2. And it's good to see all your smiling faces. And then we've got three extra smiles here today that I get to see a whole lot. And I'm thankful for Carla and Judy and Wendy coming over here today and helping to, to brighten my day and everybody else's too. Thank you all for coming. We had a little excitement yesterday. Um, first of all, Kendall and Debbie moved from over there to over here. That's pretty exciting. Kendall shamed me about the tie, so I got no tie today. Not, not this morning anyway. And then we had a little computer glitch. And um, we had uh, a picture that came up from a trip that Kelly and I took in 2020 to Mount Nebo, Arkansas. And this is one of the pictures that we took there. That's one of my favorite pictures as I've got her uh, with the valley in the background. And Bruce and Rachel and Connor Reeves met us up there and had dinner with us. And we went to the place where the infamous picture was taken that you saw yesterday <laughs> when I had a comu computer glitch. But um, that's, that's the point at Mount Nebo where you go to watch the sunset. There's a place for the sunrise and there's a place for the sunset. Both of them are incredibly beautiful, and I'm holding on to these pictures. I'm holding on to these pictures. We're talking about how to have firm faith in a fallen world. We live in a very difficult world, and as we go through life, there's so many things that we face, and we wonder why, and we don't understand, and we have temptation and trials. And we have internal conflict within ourselves. And as we go through this life and we see the many difficulties that we face, we wonder how can our faith be strong in Jesus Christ when all around us things seem to be crumbling. Well, yesterday we talked about how that our firm faith in this fallen world comes through the divinity of Jesus and today... We're going to talk about how that Jesus also came to be our brother. He came to be one of us. He came to live as a man here on earth. And so not only in his divinity, but also in his humanity, Jesus is solid footing for our faith and for our hope. And Hebrews chapter 2 has a lot to say about that. Now, the chart that didn't get to finish yesterday because I didn't have the power strip turned on, got that excitement fixed. I, I talked about how that um, there are these six points made about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. He is creator, he is the radiance of God the Father's glory, he is the Son of God, which makes him worthy of worship, he is also the omega, the, the final uh, end of creation. He will bring that to its conclusion one of these days. He is God's ultimate expression of grace. God's grace has been manifested many times in many ways throughout history, but never to the degree that when Jesus came. And he is also described as the eternal God, in other words, as Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God that is used in, in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so we talked about that. Now, the point I didn't get to make was this. Those six things actually come into three pairs. 
So Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega of creation, the creator and the conclusion of creation. He is the radiance of God's glory. In other words, he's the ultimate expression of God's grace. And he is the Son of God who is worthy of worship because he is eternal. He is Yahweh. Let me say just a couple more things about that. Yahweh, I used to think, Yahweh or Jehovah, I used to think was the Father's name in contrast with the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's not exactly right. Yahweh is the family name of God. So it is a fit description of all three because of their divine nature. Just like in my family, we have the last name of Carrington, and that is a family name. And so we're different persons who are part of the same family. And in a similar way, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... That is the family, and Yahweh is their description, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit also have distinctive things about each. Their roles, for example, are not identical, and we could, we could spend all of our time talking about that, and probably a quarter, <laughs> and we certainly wouldn't be able to, to exhaust it. So the divinity of Jesus, incredibly important, but we must not forget about his humanity. God coming in human flesh, which doesn't mean that God put on a suit like, you know, a kid dresses up for Halloween and puts on a Superman suit. No, that's not what we're talking about. Jesus really became a man. God became a man. Now, we must hasten to say that God did not give up his divinity in becoming a man. But Jesus, who is divine and eternally so, took on an additional aspect of who he would be, and that is he also became a human being. And it's, it's a mystery of mysteries. It, it's, it's way above our pay grade. But I, I was discussing this with Elmer Moore one time, and I said, Brother Moore, I said, I know that Jesus is God, and Jesus is man. But I don't understand how he's both at the same time. And Brother Moore said, Shane, neither do I. He said, and the difference between you and me and, and all these guys who are arguing about that is we know we don't understand it, and they think they do. Well, Jesus took on that other facet that he might be uh, incarnate. He might be incarnate. He might be God in flesh and blood. Let's look at some verses when you talk about the incarnation, uh, notice we have on the board in Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to notice verse, uh, verse 11, <clears throat> 14 and 17. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, who died to sanctify us or cleanse us from our sins, and those who are sanctified, that's you and me, human beings, are all from one Father. So we are children of God. Jesus is the Son of God, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We are his brothers and sisters. He is our brother because he became one of us. God became one of us. And just quit trying to fully understand that and just do two things. Thank God that however he worked that out, he did because if Jesus the divine person did not, did not also become a human being, then we would not have a mediator and we would not have a hope. 
So thank God. And secondly, serve him in awe because he accomplished what we will not ever fully understand. Come down to verse 14. Therefore, since the children, that's us, human beings, the, the children share in flesh and blood, we, we share in what it means to be a human being. Every one of us, while we go through different things in life, we share the human experience. And so it says, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same. Whatever it means to be a human being, Jesus did that. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. We're going to say more about that, but just in brief, to conquer Satan... God had to become a man. God had to come incarnate in order for that defeat to take place. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Whatever it means to be a human being, Jesus had to become that. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We'll elaborate on some of that. But God had to come in the flesh. So we referenced John chapter 1 yesterday morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Not the Word put on a Superman suit. No, the Word became flesh. He became a human being. And he had to do that for various reasons that we will notice. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6, we read this one yesterday. Hebrews 1 and verse 6 concerning the Father. And when he again brings the firstborn, Jesus, into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So while he comes as man, he doesn't give up his divinity because he's still worthy of worship. And so the essential nature of the incarnation. Now what are some things that demand that Jesus had to come in the flesh, that God had to become one of us. What are some reasons in Hebrews chapter 1 that we are given why that had to be the case? Well, I tell you, when we're through, here's what we're going to notice. Because he did that, we can have firm faith in this fallen world. We're going to notice that. Our hope is great, and that's tomorrow morning's lesson about our great hope. So let's notice the following things. Jesus had to come. God in the flesh, God coming in the form of man. He had to do that in order to face temptation. Come down to verse 17 and 18, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, where it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that is a, a sin offering, a sacrifice for the sins of the people, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid to those who are tempted. I want you to notice in that verse, if he had not gone through the human experience in this way of temptation, he could not help us. He could not help us. He had to go through what we go through, yet he did it successfully, and we did not. Which brings me to this point. A lot of times when people describe, describe the characteristics of human beings, they'll say things like this. Humans are weak. Humans sin. Humans are fallen beings. Okay? 
That's not entirely true. That's not entirely true. I had my three grandbabies and my oldest daughter here with me Sunday morning. Now, those three grandbabies, as you witnessed, (laughs) and some of you witness all the time, uh, they can be a little rambunctious. They can be a little loud. They can be a little, a little difficult to manage. Are they sinners? They're pure and innocent in the sight of God. Are they human beings? So the human experience does not necessarily include transgression. Now, from a Calvinist point of view, all, all babies are born with the stain of, of Adam's guilt on their souls. We know better than that. Being a sinner is not a necessary aspect of being human. And one of the big differences between Jesus and us is not that he never was tempted in all points as we are, but that he was going through all the temptation yet without sin. That's what differentiates him from us. Because when we get to an accountable age, we sometimes don't make the best choices. And sin becomes a problem that is ours, very personally, that we have to wrestle with. Jesus went through the temptations, and he said no every time to the attempts of Satan to try to draw him away. So the temptation of Christ, and think about this, one who has been tempted and resisted as you have many times. The one who has been tempted and resisted That's the person who has felt the full brunt of what temptation is. And Jesus faced those. God became a man. And one of the reasons he did that was because it was necessary for God to walk a mile in our shoes. To experience what we go through. And through that to conquer for us. To give us great hope. Turn to chapter 4. Beginning with verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. If the temptations of Jesus were not real, could he sympathize with the struggle that we go through? No, he could not. His temptations were real. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. What's his conclusion? Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The great mercy of God for us, which is manifested through Jesus, is amplified because he walked a mile in our shoes. But then again, He resisted and did not sin, whereas we sometimes fall short. That gives us a great deal of hope. When somebody knows what you go through because they've experienced something very similar, that helps them see what you are experiencing and gives them a wonderful opportunity to be assistance to you And thus, the temptation of Christ. Now, somebody says, okay, Shane, so what you're saying is that Jesus wanted to do every sinful thing that's ever existed in the history of the world. No, I'm not saying that. In fact, there's not a person sitting in this room 
who has specifically wanted to, to uh, do every sin that, that could be committed. Not a single one of us. There are some things that, that are not a draw to you. I heard Brother Leon say, I think I've heard him say it more than once, how that, you know, illicit drugs were never something that had an appeal to him. And we could all have a long list of things that don't have an appeal to us. But what he did do is he experienced the avenues of temptation that all humanity experienced. What does it say in 1 John 2? The lust of the, of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He experienced the temptations of those. But whatever it was and whatever specific sin, he would resist. And he is an example for us that we can resist. We can. But when we fail, we have someone who walked in our shoes who never failed. And thus his incarnation gives us great strength and great hope. Somebody says, well, you know, trying to be like Jesus, that's just, um, uh, that's an impossible task. Okay, so... Every, every basketball player since about 1980-something-something has wanted to be like, not LeBron, like Mike. Everybody's wanted to be like Michael Jordan. All basketball players want to be like Michael Jordan. So how many have come even close? A handful. But those others, in looking to someone who does it so well, have learned things that have helped them do it better And while they may never reach the skill level that he had, his skill level helps them to grow and to learn and to have a direction that the ideal helps us move toward. And Jesus, in his perfection as a human being, in his unwillingness to give in to temptation and to sin, he sets an example for us so that as we face things, we can face it with the tools that he has provided. Let me give you one example of that. Recall when... Uh, He was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. And the devil offered this, and the devil offered that. And and really the biggest thing the devil offered was this. If you are the Son of God. He tried to appeal to uh, the pride of life, as it's called in 1 John chapter 2. If you are the Son of God. And what did Jesus say all three times? He said the same thing we need to say. What was it? It is written. It is written. It is written. Every time I face temptation, I need to face that like Jesus did, well equipped with the Word of God. Because here's what a lot of folks do. They don't know what the Word of God says. Or they know what it says, but they're not committed to it as God's Word. And when you face temptation, if you don't face it with the right information, you don't face it with the right motivation, then that temptation is going to be that much stronger and the possibility of succumbing to temptation will be that much higher. We must face temptation with understanding of what God says, right versus wrong, wisdom versus lack of wisdom, and face it with commitment to that because if we don't, We'll get in situations and we haven't thought it through and we don't, we don't have the information on the top of our heads and we're not committed to what the Bible says anyway and we'll face that temptation and we'll get all kinds of emotional 
You see, one of the biggest problems with temptation is we get all kinds of emotional. Oh, boy, this will be really fun. Oh, wow, this will make me really popular. Oh, this will take my mind off so many things if I just do this wrong thing for a little while. Oh, and you know what? I'll just do it one time, and it'll be okay after that. I'll, I'll, I'll do it one time, and then I'll repent, and I'll get on track, and everything will be fine. And so we get all emotional about temptation. We need to have our minds right. We need to have our hearts committed. And I'm not saying we'll never succumb if we're like that, but I, I will tell you this, if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus when it comes to that, we've got tools that will help us. Oh, and by the way, one of the greatest tools God gave you and me to overcome temptation are the people who are sitting in this room right now that you know and that you love and who set an example because they're following in the footsteps of Jesus and helping us to remember Him. So, the temptation of Jesus, uh, he had to become God incarnate to do that. But his suffering, and somebody says, temptation, suffering. Well, let's take a look. Notice in verse 9, chapter 2 and verse 9, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. You see, God is higher than the angels. He became lower than the angels. He became a human being, namely Jesus. Why? Because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. That is, he is divine. He is the one who created the universe, chapter 1. But yet it says it was fitting for him in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Through sufferings. Now you think about it. God doesn't suffer unless God condescends to take on an additional nature and become a human because humans suffer. He was willing to do exactly that willing to do exactly that because he had to be identified with us in order to lead us and in order to save us come down to verse 18 again we're going to be repeating ourselves some but but it all flows together for since he himself was tempted in that he has suffered he is able to come to the aid of those who were tempted Uh, you know as well as i do if you face something in your life and then and then you see somebody else and they're facing something very similar you're in a really good position To go to them and say, listen, I know what you're going through. I get it. So when Kelly was first diagnosed with cancer, we we had our first appointment at MD Anderson. And one one of the young men from from Greenville, who's a member at Hillside, uh, he he and his, uh, his wife were in attendance at Sulphur Springs that Sunday night. And so he heard the announcement. Well, his, his um, great aunt is a three-time cancer survivor. She's had different kinds of cancer. She's got a 30-something year history with cancer. And it just so happens that she was going to be having an appointment, a checkup, 
at MD Anderson the, the very same day that we were going to be there for our first time. So she and her husband and her brother and her sister-in-law, because they always go together, <clears throat> they sent me, a, sent me a message and they said, when's your appointment? Where is your appointment? And before we ever saw Dr. Haber the first time, guess who we saw? We saw the Hales and we saw the Millers. And when people are going through what you're going through, they can help you. Jesus went through what we go through. He suffered and he can help us. But now, his atoning sacrifice. Now let's talk about atonement here for, for just a moment. The term, the term atonement has to do with, with mercy being extended. It is a sacrifice through which mercy is being extended. This concept is found a lot in the Old Testament. If you want to turn to Leviticus for just a couple of moments. Leviticus chapter 16, and um, it's one of the very important points that the book of Leviticus makes how that the sacrifices of the Old Testament were for the purpose of trying to uh, alleviate the guilt of sin. But you and I know that the blood of goats, Hebrews chapter 10, cannot take away sin. But there were temporary measures that pointed toward the sacrifice who could take away sin. So in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Leviticus chapter 16 and come down to verse 30, it says, for it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you, and notice why, to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. When atoning animal sacrifice was offered, it was to cleanse them of their sins. Come down to chapter 17 and verse 11, one of the best verses in the Old Testament on the subject. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, the lifeblood of the animal, I have given it to you on the altar, but notice why, to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. So blood sacrifice is the means of atonement. It is the means of cleansing from sin. And folks, in order for Jesus to have blood, to be able to be offered as a sacrifice for our sins. He had to become flesh. The life of the flesh is in the blood. He had to come flesh and blood in order to atone for our sins. Look at Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 3 it says of Jesus and he is the radiance of, of his glory, of the glory of the Father and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Here we go. When he had made purification of sins. When by his atoning sacrifice he made purification for our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Come down to chapter 2 and verse 17. 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And there are a lot of differences between Old Testament animal sacrifices and the sacrifice of Jesus, but one of those is this. 
Old Testament animal sacrifices, the animal was offered by a priest. The sacrifice of Jesus, he is the priest who offers himself as the sacrifice. Another big difference, those Old Testament sacrifices were like band-aids on a gaping wound. Jesus comes to provide full cleansing through his sacrifice because his sacrifice is perfect. And I want you to think about one more thing. When it comes to the atoning death of Jesus, it was not enough for a human to die for our sins. We're familiar with uh, the Old Testament where it talks about the pagan god Molech. And what did they offer to Molech? What did pagans offer to Molech? They offered children. They offered innocent babies. In fact, there are artistic, artistic uh, representations of, of what they think uh, maybe the statue looked like with the oven that was inside where they would put the babies and the babies would be incinerated. How many sins did, did the sacrifice of those babies take away? We have an innocent sacrifice, an innocent human sacrifice, but instead of it taking away sin, that itself was sin. It was sin. So human, that's not enough. Innocent human, that's not enough. It had to be a human who simultaneously was God. Folks, God had to die. And God can't die unless God comes as human. That's why Jesus had to be God incarnate. He could not have taken away our sins by sacrifice of himself if he had not become a man. What an important thing we see. Come down to chapter 9 here for a moment. Chapter 9 and verse 19. Chapter 9 and verse 19. Listen to these words. As he talks about the Old Testament versus the New Testament, he says, therefore it was necessary that the copies, that, that's the, the pattern which was the Old Testament, their ritual system of sacrifice and priesthood and so forth, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things, here we see what Jesus did by offering himself. The heavenly things uh, themselves with better sacrifices than these, these Old Testament uh, animal sacrifices. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands. He didn't go into the temple in the city of Jerusalem with, with the sacrifice of his blood. He didn't go in there as an earthly priest, as a Levitical priest. He's not even from the tribe of Levi. He did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Because you see, the, first the tabernacle, then later the temple, that represented heaven. And the innermost sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant was represented God's footstool of God's throne. And when the Old Testament Levitical priest went in with blood sacrifice, he was, in a figurative way, representing what Jesus would do in an ultimate way. Because rather than going into the physical temple to offer his blood, his sacrifice went straight to heaven, which is what the innermost sanctuary of the tabernacle represented. 
nor was it, verse 25, that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world. But now once, Jesus sacrifices once. It's one time for all time. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has manifested, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment, so also, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. By his atoning sacrifice, his one-time offering, he is able to make redemption a reality for us. And thus the exaltation of Jesus. He could not be exalted in, in an understandable way at least like he is because he became man and went through the things that were required in that. Think about this as we look. The exaltation of Christ Uh, through his sacrifice look at verse 9 look at verse 9 but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels namely jesus because of the suffering death but because he suffered death what what does he have now crowned with glory and honor crowned with glory and honor he is exalted because of what he was willing to give we also see through him being our leader. In verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons of glo- to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. He is our king. He is our leader. He is the one who is the author of our salvation through redemption, and thus his exaltation again. And then he also, because he went through all those things, he experiences now a heavenly exaltation. Back in chapter 1 and verse 3 again, it says uh, how that he represents God. And, and then it says when he made purifications for sin, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God where he reigns as king of kings right now. And thus we see his heavenly exaltation. And folks, the exaltation of Jesus is also made obvious to us when we see the defeats he handed out in order to bring us victory he defeated the devil he defeated the one who tempts us and who would try to draw us away just as the devil unsuccessfully tried to draw jesus away we also see that jesus defeated the barrier between us and god which for me is my sin and for you is yours He broke that down. And we see that he also defeated death. There's the fearful consequence that that we live in dread of. But Jesus, in his death, defeated the sting of that, brought to its full culmination in his resurrection. Let's read the verses that we have on the board from Hebrews chapter 2 beginning with verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless 
him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He defeated our adversary. And might free those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I have no fear of death. But I will tell you this, I have no fear of what's on the other side of my death. No fear. No fear. I embrace that. Because Jesus came here and he conquered my enemy. And he destroyed my sin. And he gives me strength and courage and hope to live for him. And when I fall short and I fall on my knees, he is willing to take away whatever I have done. And he stands me upright. And he assures me that in following him, he will lead me to victory, just like these verses that we have read says that he will. So the exaltation of Christ, but also the example of Christ. We haven't read verse 5 through 9 yet. Come up to verse 5. For he did not subject to angels. The Father didn't subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking but one has testified somewhere somebody tell us where this verse comes from psalm 8 some has test someone's testified somewhere by the way the jews who who heard this they're like yeah that's psalm 8 that's david they they knew that and so uh, here's what it says in psalm 8 what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not sub subject to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. But I tell you what we do see, he says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Let me show you what one of the very powerful and helpful things about Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2 is. Now, is that applied to Jesus in Hebrews 2? Sure is. It sure is. But I want you to notice in Psalm 8, not only is this about what Jesus will do for us, it is about the rightful place that God gave us as human beings. And when Jesus came, Hebrews chapter 2, he did in reality what all of us are supposed to be trying to do, and that is take care of things here on earth as stewards of what God has put under our domain as best we can while we live in this world. If you remember back in the Garden of Eden, what, what did God tell Adam and Eve? Do this, do this, do this. You are to tend it and to keep it. God has invested in us responsibilities too. And as human beings, that is our job. Our job here on earth is not how much fun can I have. Our job here on earth is how can I honor the Lord, serve Him, and help other people in regard to that. That's what our job is. Now, are we 100% successful at that? No, we, we fail sometimes miserably. But I tell you, somebody who did it perfectly and did it ultimately and who did it so that through what he has done, 
He is the fit one to take away my shortcomings in doing what God wants me to do. And thus we see the example of Christ which leads us to walk as closely in his footsteps as we can, knowing that when we fall short of that, by his blood he is willing to forgive us and stand us upright yet again. And all of this he did to aid us. Look at verse 18 again. Chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who have been tempted. He conquered temptation every time. You and I don't always succeed. But because he is who he is and he did what he did, when we fail, he can help us. In chapter 4, when we pray, He hears us and He walks with us in what we face in life. I want to summarize with another chart since the power strip's turned on and it's not going to fail me this time, I don't think. We're going to finish with another chart. So we have the temptation of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. And by the way, sufferings that we go through are sometimes the biggest temptations that we face. Because when we suffer, we might have a tendency to want to be discouraged, to give up, to say, what's the use, throw up our hands. So suffering can be a great source of temptation. But Jesus was tempted, he suffered, but he became our atoning sacrifice. So that because he was tempted and because he suffered, but he still was faithful to God, he was the one who could provide aid for us. And he is exalted and he is our example as a result of that. And if he had not come in the flesh, he could not have been those things for us. What a gift he gave when Philippians 2 He left heavenly glory and he came God incarnate and he suffered and he died and he arose to walk a mile in our shoes. So we had had Kelly's funeral on a Monday and On about Friday of that very same week, one of our dear sisters in the church at home was in the hospital. Her name is Cheryl Burt. And Cheryl's best friend, Wanda Elliott, was there at the hospital room too. And both of those, both those ladies um, have lost their husbands 10 years ago or so apiece. And so I come in the room and I sit down. And uh, Cheryl's feeling okay. She wasn't feeling that bad that day. And so she looks at me and she says, Okay, Shane, how are you doing really? And I said, I said, Cheryl, you know. And she and Wanda simultaneously started nodding their heads. And she said, Yep, I do. I do. And then I said this to them. I said, I want to tell both of you something. 
As soon as Kelly passed, I looked at both of you different than I ever have before. Because I didn't know what they were going through until it happened to me. Folks, Jesus didn't fully know what we were going through until he became one of us and he walked in our shoes. And he can help us. We trust him. We listen to him. And we stay close to him and to his people. He will make of us what we could never be without Him. And in this fallen world, what great hope we have. Praise God for all that He's done. You guys listen so well, and I appreciate this time. And we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll be through with this session. Gracious Father, you have blessed us so richly. You were willing to send your son and he was willing to come. And Jesus took on so many difficulties in taking on human flesh. And we're thankful that he was willing to do that. That as he has stood in our place and he has successfully overcome what we often do not we're thankful that in him we can have the ultimate sacrifice to redeem us and we're grateful for the strength that we have through him for the example that he set to help us to live in a heavenward fashion that we may go through life and that we may gradually but yet we may still grow to be more like him and we thank you for your willingness to make all this possible and for him to be willing to do all of these things. Father, help us to help one another. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to have our eyes open for those who we come into contact with that we might help them to know you as well. Be with us as we depart. And we pray that you'll bring us back together again very soon. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.